This is Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Hello, and welcome to Dialogue Gospel Study for June 27th, 2021. We'll be exploring Doctrine and Covenants 67 through six, uh, 75 with Dr. Matthew Bowman. I'm Rebecca Deschweinitz, and along with fellow Dialogue board, Foundation board members Chris Kimball and Michael Austin and Matt Bowman, uh, I'm happy to welcome everyone. If you're joining us for the first time, you can check out our previous lessons, which are all available as podcasts or videos and linked at dialoguejournal.com. Our website also features the entire 50 plus years of the journal scholarship, poetry, essays, sermons, fiction, and art. Matt's lesson will be added to the list of previous lessons, and that usually happens by the end of the day. In the first issue of the journal, founder Eugene England wrote, my faith encourages my curiosity and awe. It thrusts me out into relationship with all creation and encourages me to enter into dialogue. To fulfill Jean's vision in the 21st century, we have made the journal, all 54 years of archived issues and all of our new digital offerings, including this gospel study series, our podcasts and other features entirely free for online users. This is meant moving away from a subscription model of funding. We have spent the past few years figuring out how a digital model for Dialogues Foundation would work. We have set a budget and made a plan and are asking for your help in creating a fund that secures the future of Dialogue. You can find out more about sustaining Dialogue at givetodialogue.com. We also have an email address dedicated to this campaign. That address is sustainingdialogue at dialoguejournal.com. For today's lesson, if you are with us live on Zoom this morning, at least it's bright and early for me in Fairbanks, Alaska, land of the midnight sun, um, you're welcome to post respectful and relevant comments and questions in the chat. We'll also try to keep track of what folks have to say on Facebook, where we all are also live. Uh, I might let Chris take care of that since my internet is a little bit spotty here. Uh, at any rate, we look forward to integrating some of your comments and questions into today's lesson. Matthew Bowman, besides being on the Dialogue Foundation, uh, is the Howard W. Hunter Chair of Mormon Studies at Claremont Graduate University. He's the author of so many things, uh, including The Mormon People, The Making of an American Faith, and co-editor with Kate Holbrook of Women in Mormonism, Historical and Contemporary Perspectives. He has also written books about the meaning of the word Christian in America, Protestant fundamentalism, and most recently, alien abduction. We're grateful for Dr. Bowman's preparation and are excited to see what insights he brings uh, to us today. As is true with any Latter-day Saint scripture study class, the views expressed will be those of the individual teacher and do not necessarily reflect those of the Dialogue Foundation, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or any other organization. To start us off, Christy Franson will give the opening prayer. Christy is the chair of the Mormon Studies Council affiliated with Claremont Graduate University Mormon Studies Program. She studied the Hebrew Bible and New Testament at Duke Divinity School and has taught in seminaries and institutes of the church in Southern California for more than two decades. After the lesson, Allison Pond will offer a closing prayer, a former senior editor of the Deseret News. Allison also previously worked as a research associate at the Pew Research Center. She has a master's in public policy from Georgetown University, a BA from Brigham Young, University and is currently studying to become a counselor. But first, uh, we'll enjoy music. I heard the voice of Jesus say from the virtual Cathedral Choir of St. John the Divine in New York City. Our dear Father in heaven, we thank thee so much for this beautiful Sabbath day, the, how wonderful it is to be gathered together virtually as saints, as disciples of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That we have heard thy voice and seen thy hand in our lives during these past challenging months. We have experienced miracles in medicine and technology. We've experienced miracles in inspiration and revelation 
that have guided us and sustained us and comforted us through challenging months. Now, as we emerge from this hard time as a world, as a family of thy children, we pray that we will remember lessons that we have learned. This wonderful community that we have established through this Dialogue Sunday study that we will carry the things that we've learned and experienced with us and make this world a better place. Father, on this day, June 27th, we remember Joseph Smith and we give thee thanks for all that he did to us. I think we've lost Christy. <laughs> so we will take her thoughts and the spirit and um, beautiful message of her prayer and say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. <laughs> well, um, I I'm happy to be here and I am grateful for the opportunity uh, to join this really illustrious and insightful um, roster of people who have offered these lessons. Um, it's humbling um, to be part of this and I hope I'm able to do justice both to our texts but also to those who have come before me. Um, as I was looking at the passages um, for today's lesson, I really um, was drawn most to DNC 67. So that is where we're going to focus, DNC 67, but also those other sections uh, that I think contextualize DNC 67, that tell the story of this revelation um, and what it might mean for us. Um, and as with any scripture, or passage of scripture, um, it can be challenging, I think, to extract meaning from some of these, particularly some of these smaller DNC sections that seem to be directed to individuals who lived a long time ago, people who we don't perhaps know. Um, but I think because we are part of a faith community that has accepted these passages of scripture, we have to grapple with them and to think about what they might mean for us many, many decades later. And the most powerful way I have found to do that is to read them in conversation with other passages of scripture. And that is why I want to start, not with Dean 67, um, but with Philippians in the New Testament. And this is the second chapter of Paul's epistle um, to the Philippians. And it's a famous passage. It is a poem or perhaps a hymn that Paul records. And it gets at, I think, maybe better than any other Christian scripture, the real paradox that lies near the heart of Christianity. And you can see it here. Um, Paul says, he, he directs our attention to Christ, right? He says, though Christ was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited but rather he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. And, and the King James Version elides this a bit by saying servant, but it's slave. Um, being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And here, here we come to, I think, the pivotal word here, therefore. Therefore, because of that, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. This is, in a lot of ways, right, Paul grappling with the paradox of Christ himself. That is, Christ is divine, but also human. Um, Christ is holy. Um, he is God, but he also died on a cross, right? How do we reconcile that paradox? Um, but it, it should be, I think, on our minds as we as Christians people who have taken our, upon ourselves that name of Christ, and more, we as members 
of the body of Christ, right? Members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, an institution, an organization that, like any church, calls itself the body of Christ, the manifestation of Christ on earth today. What does it mean for the church to be the body of Christ, for the church to take upon itself this truth that it is through humility um, that we gain exaltation? Now, what does this mean? It does not mean, I think, that if we humble ourselves, that we will then gain power. That is, if we strip away from ourselves wealth or celebrity or fame or any of these other things that give us power in the world, then God will give us those things. I suspect it's often used that way or we think of it that way because we have trouble thinking beyond this, this broken world that we live in, the world where, in which power is equated with wealth and celebrity, financial gain, political authority, military strength, right? It is natural and very human, I think, to want to see in this lesson a route to that kind of power, that worldly power. Uh, but the point that Paul is trying to make here is that Christ, right? Christ was Isaiah, you know, the prophecy of Isaiah that's applied to Christ so often, he had no beauty that we should desire him. The point is not how powerful or worldly respected Christ is. That's one way, I think, to misunderstand this paradox, to think that, that once we get through that humility part, we'll become powerful in conventional ways. But Christ's power is not power of domination. Um, rather, Christ is known in humiliation, suffering. God chose Israel, right, to be his people, people who were slaves. God sent Jesus to be born in poverty. And as we see in Luke 2, right, Luke, I think, beautifully contrasts the power of Caesar, who commands the whole world at the beginning of Luke 2, and then we zoom into the small, humble manger where Christ is. So that's one misreading. I think, to think that through humility, we simply gain the kind of power that we may not have in the world. The other misreading, I think, is to exalt suffering through this, to simply equate suffering with divinity, to read suffering as being the point of the divine plan, right? To say, well, Christ suffered, therefore suffering is the point, right? And I don't think that's true either. Um, and another, I think, scripture, ether, helps us think through that. And we know, right, this famous passage in Ether 12, this wonderful passage where Moroni is thinking through the same paradox, this paradox of weakness. And Moroni tells us over and over and over again here, but also in other places in the Book of Mormon, that he is a weak writer. He's very worried about this. He thinks, right, the weakness of his language, as he says here in Ether 12, 25, um, we behold our weakness, we stumble because of the placing of our words, and I fear lest the Gentiles shall mock at our words. Um, but, of course, as we see, um, God doesn't make Moroni a great writer. He doesn't simply reverse his humility. Rather, we see something else here. And, and this is, of course, either 1227, this famous verse that I memorized when I was in scripture mastery, but way back in seminary. Um, if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. I give unto men weakness that they may be humble. And my grace is sufficient for all men that humble themselves before me. For if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. At least when I was in seminary, we stopped there. And if you read it that way, right, you can see, uh, well, yeah, well, okay, Moroni is weak. God will just make Moroni a great writer. I am poor. God will make me rich. Um, I have no political authority. God will make me a congressman, whatever, right? That kind of just simple reversal. But if we go on, we see more here. Behold, I will show unto the Gentiles their weakness, and I will show unto them that faith, hope, and charity bringeth unto me the foundation or fountain, excuse me, of all righteousness. That says something different, right? That says weakness 
Suffering is not the point, but neither is the point simply to reverse suffering. The answer is to go through suffering to heal it in ways that don't simply give suffering people the, people the same power that might have caused their suffering in the first place. God does not reward those who humble themselves with the strength to make others suffer. Christ did not empty himself to gain the power of Rome, right? Rather, Christ emptied himself and gained a different sort of power, the power to remake the world. The strength of Christ is in faith, hope, charity, right? These are the things that will build a world in which nobody suffers. Now, I want you to remember this paradox, to think on this paradox, to carry it in your minds as we move through what may seem on the face, very, very different passages of scripture, um, DNC 65 through 68, with their particular focus on 67. So with that, I want to introduce you to this guy. This is William McClellan. Um, DNC 67, our focus, is received in tandem with a whole series of other revelations, four or so that you see here, 65 through 68. Um, they are out of chronological order in the DNC. Um, so we're going to kind of move through them in chronological order um, and draw out a couple of points from them. These few sections of the DNC are all received, as I say, in the space of about a week. October, early November, 1831. Um, and they are all, I think, share with them um, a couple of points. First, many of them, as you see here in 65, are about proclaiming the gospel. Over and over and over, they say, the keys of the kingdom are here. From those keys shall the gospel roll forth unto the ends of the earth. They're about preaching, spreading the gospel, spreading the word. They're also directed to really particular people. Um, and of course, we may have noticed this as we have gone through the DNC in our, our own study, right? There's all these names invoked, and you see them reeling off here in section 68. My servant Orson Hyde, my servant Luke Johnson, my servant Lyman Johnson, my servant William McClellan, right? All of these people are told over and over and over that they are now charged with spreading the gospel. William McClellan is going to be our particular focus here. Um, this is a famous picture of William McClellan. Don't be deceived by it. At this point in 1831, he's about the same age as Joseph Smith. He's 25 years old, not 45, 50, as he is in this, in this photograph. He is an Illinois school teacher. His mother is actually a Cherokee. Um, he joins the church in the fall of 1831. He travels on missions almost immediately. Um, he is told to go on missions almost immediately. And he meets with Joseph Smith in October of 1831. Um, and travels with Joseph Smith to Ohio, um, where they meet with a number of other members of the church who are the subject of DNC 67. Like these other people, McClellan receives his own revelation. Um, that is in section 66. And you see here in a, in a life writing that McClellan did later in his life, um, the context for section 66. He says, I went home with the prophet and on Saturday the 29th, I received through him and wrote from his mouth a revelation concerning myself. I had expected and believed that when I saw brother Joseph, I should receive one. And I went before the Lord in secret and on my knees asked him to reveal the answer to five questions through the prophet. And that two, without having any knowledge of my having made such a request. So McClellan, right, comes up with some questions. He wants some answers. And he says that in section 66, which reads very much like some of these other revelations, right? It, um, it tells McClellan he is blessed. You can see it at the bottom of the screen there. You have turned away from your iniquities. You have received my truth, say the Lord, your redeemer. And then he is told to proclaim the gospel from land to land, from city to city. For McClellan, this is an extremely powerful moment. Um, he says to the end of his life, actually, and he eventually leaves the church in 1838, um, to the end of his life, he says that this revelation knew things about him. This revelation knew questions that he had um, that he had not told Joseph Smith about. Now, we might stop there, 
And often um, in the church, when we talk about McClellan in this section, we do stop there. We say this is simply faith promoting, right? It, it reveals this sort of insight that Joseph Smith had, this prophetic insight. But as with everything, I think it's more complicated than that. And there are more interesting questions here about the meaning and the nature of revelation that we might unpack, which leads us ultimately to section 67 and to what happens with William McClellan um, that leads to that revelation. When Joseph Smith and William McClellan gather with other saints in Ohio, there was a conversation had there. And it is a conversation that draws on a lot of these earlier revelations, right? These revelations directed to individuals, these revelations that encourages people to go on missions, that speak to people like McClellan and Orson Hyde and all the rest. And that question is, we have a lot of these revelations, what they called commandments. We have a lot of these commandments now. Should we make them scripture? Should we canonize them? And they decide to do this in a meeting they have in November. They call it the Book of Commandments. Now, this might, in retrospect, or to us, right, seem obvious. Of course, we should canonize these things. Of course, we should make them scripture. But it's a, it's a stickier question than we might begin with. Um, and that is, of course, many of these messages were singular. They were directed to one person. They're about a specific con um, context, a specific instance. So what does it mean to turn these very particular messages into something timeless, something intended for larger audiences? There was a scholar of religion named Wilfred Cantwell Smith. Um, who offers a definition of scripture that I think might be useful for us here. And he argues that scripture is not simply a text. Scripture is a relationship. Scripture is a relationship between a text and a group of people who consider it scripture, a group of people who think about it as scripture. It is not then just words on a page. It is how those words are understood and applied and used. And these people are very conscious of that, of what it means to turn these revelations, these individual commandments into a book of scripture. Joseph Smith, as they're discussing this, receives what is now section one of the Doctrine and Covenants. And you see here some awareness of that in section one. The opening verse, right, the opening couple of verses of section one broaden this. And it says, as you see here on your screen, hearken, O ye people of my church, saith the voice of him who dwells on high and whose eyes are upon all men. Yea, verily I say, hearken ye people from afar, and ye are upon the islands of the sea. Listen together, right? There's an attempt here to broaden the audience for these revelations. But then, Section one tells us something about what scripture itself is. And this, 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 this should, I think, bring to our minds again those paradoxes that I opened with. The paradox of ether, the paradox of Philippians, because like Moroni, we are told here that the writing in these revelations may not be perfect. These commandments are of me and were given unto my servants in their weakness after the manner of their language. But notice then also, we see here a bit of what's happening in Philippians as well, that the weakness is perhaps the point. They were given unto my servants in their weakness after the manner of their language that they might come to understanding. It's because these commandments are given in weakness after the manner of language that we might understand. And then we see a whole ream of more um, dialectics here. Inasmuch as they erred, it might be made known. Error 
leads to knowledge. In as much as they sought wisdom, they might be instructed. Seeking wisdom leads to instruction. In as much as they sinned, they might be chastened that they might repent. Sinning leads to repentance. And in as much as they are humble, they might be made strong and blessed and receive knowledge from time to time. Section one here tells us that the point of the DNC is in many ways the same point as Christ himself. That he comes to us in our weakness and in our limitations. And through those limitations, not in spite of those limitations, but because of that weakness, because of that limitations, we are given these blessings. We are given these things that we cannot get in the world as we know it. Um, but we know these things only through that weakness. This is the real issue that William McClellan and all these other saints who were there when this revelation section one was received, who are discussing whether or not to turn these commandments into a new book of scripture, they grapple with this. Um, and we see a division among them that I think reflects this issue and this problem. And that's in section 67 itself. So Joseph Smith, after they decide to do this, to make the Book of Commandments a work of scripture, Joseph Smith asks them this question that you see at the top. The Lord has bestowed upon us a great blessing or a great blessing upon us in giving commandments and revelations. What testimony should we attach to these commandments, which should shortly be sent to the world? There again, right, you see this awareness that scripture is in part about audience, about who is receiving it. Joseph Smith wants a testimony to attach to it. He's thinking here of the Book of Mormon, the testimony of the three witnesses attached to the Book of Mormon to say that this book is special somehow. And he wants to append a testimony like that to this Book of Commandments, to what will become the Doctrine and Covenants. He wants, essentially, some witnesses, some witnesses to have a spiritual confirmation experience that God desires this to happen, that God wants these revelations to be sent out to the world, that they are revelations. So he asks all of these saints who are there, can we do that? Can we produce a statement to append to this book of commandments? And for some, for some people who are there, they can do that. They say they have a spiritual experience, an ecstatic experience. They sign a document that states the Holy Ghost shed forth upon us that these commandments are given by inspiration of God and are profitable for all men and are verily true. And notice that interesting uh, connection, right? Um, the Holy Ghost shed forth upon them. That is, they have that sort of deep, ecstatic, spiritual experience, analogous to what the three witnesses had, right? This sort of emotional, spiritual experience, a confirmation experience in Mormon lingo, um, that these commandments are, and notice how they define truth, are given by inspiration of God, are profitable, and are therefore true. But, 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 there are some others who are present who don't have that kind of experience. There are others present who are confused because they are expecting that kind of experience. They want to talk about it. In Joseph Smith's history, it states there was some conversation had concerning revelation and language, which is so interesting and so kind of enigmatic, right? What, what exactly are they saying? We can kind of deduce a little bit what's happening here. We know, for instance, um, much later in his life, David Whitmer tells us that he's very uncomfortable with the Book of Commandments because Joseph Smith sometimes edits the revelations. He sometimes goes back later um, and fixes things like grammar 
um, occasionally, as with some other like uh, DNC 121, there are two revelations that are kind of welded together into one section. Um, David Whitmer says later in his life, he doesn't think that's right. He doesn't think that should be happening. There are others who seem concerned that there are grammatical errors in these revelations in the first place. I do think that, well, if these are divine revelations, why are there, you know, why are there um, subject verb disagreements in them? That kind of thing. Um, famously, of course, and we'll get to this in a moment, William McClellan eventually tries to write his own revelation. I um, mean, he can't do it. He can't do it to the satisfaction of all the people who are there. It doesn't sound to them like a real revelation. But regardless, this group of people, they're looking at these texts and they're wondering, why is it that God is not confirming to us that these are revelations that should be sent forth into the world? Why is it that we're reading these texts and not receiving that kind of confirmation? That is a good question. Um, and it, I think, leads us to a broader question that I want to talk about for a moment. And that is, what is revelation? How is revelation linked to authority? And we see here a couple of models in this conversation that's happening in Ohio about this. Um, there's this first model, right? The kind of ecstatic model, the model we often associate with revelation. That is, you have a kind of personal experience, an emotional experience, a spiritual experience. This is not something we can reproduce for each other. It's something that feels like it comes from God and from God alone. Is revelation like that? That's a good question. Then you have these other people who are not having that kind of um, conversation, who are worried because to them, it seems odd that we would call scripture something that's been edited, something that has bad grammar in it, right? Um, and I think often when we have these kinds of conversations in the church, we tend to erect binaries. We say, either it's all God or it's all human, it's not both. We say, well, you know, if there are errors of fact, in scripture, how can it be scripture? And um, we'll say if there are grammatical errors in scripture, how can it be scripture? We'll worry, right, that if there is a human element in scripture, how can it be scripture? And I think, I think that what we saw in Philippians and in Ether is a way out of that. The process that Paul describes in Philippians of Christ emptying himself, descending, taking upon himself the form of a slave is traditionally called in Christian theology, the incarnation. In the incarnation, we see the human and divine meet in one and become one. And we see Paul tells us, and Moroni tells us, right, that it's in that weakness, in that joining of the divine with the human, that power comes. And divine power, godly power, not the power of humanity, but the power to really change the world, the power of faith, the power of hope, the power of charity, faith, faith to believe that God can change things that God can bring about transformation. Hope, the ability to see what that transformation might look like. The ability to imagine what a better world might be and charity, the power to bring that about. Section 67 of the Doctrine and Covenants is a revelation in response to this conundrum that these saints are finding themselves in. This conundrum, this collision between ecstatic and contextual revelation, this question about what revelation really is. Section 67 is a response, and I think it gets at a lot of these ideas. Let's look at it. It talks first about fear, and I think it's really interesting. Um, the section 67 contrasts two things. It contrasts humility and fear, it tells us actually that it's not necessarily pride, it is fear that is the opposite of humility. 
this revelation in 67 tells these people, you endeavored to believe that you should receive the blessing, right? This, this kind of confirmation that those people who had that ecstatic experience had, but you didn't because there was fear in your heart. Inasmuch as you strip from yourselves jealousies and fears, then you will achieve humility. It's fascinating to me that this revelation tells us that it is fear that's the opposite of humility. And that's so true, I think. That's a profound observation. Because what do we do when we are afraid? When we are afraid, we seek power. When we are afraid, we assert our own authority. When we are afraid, we try to compensate for fear by taking refuge in pride. And we see that, I think, a lot in our conversations about God and our conversations about the church, our conversations about what it means to be a Christian. So many of those conversations are about information. Is information accurate or inaccurate? Is information right or wrong? What do we do about errors? And that brings to mind, right, Marilyn Robinson's wonderful line in her novel, Gilead, nothing true can be said about God from a posture of defense. When we are afraid, when we are arguing, when we are defending a position, we're not speaking truth about God because we're talking about information. And God is not information. God is a person. Through much of the rest of this section, we're given a different model for what truth might be. Now, of course, William McClellan here tried to write his own revelation. And you see in section 67, an allusion to that, um, when it says, right, appoint him that is most wise among you um, to write a revelation. Now, often poor William McClellan gets thrown under the bus here. Right? We say, oh, you know, he was challenging Joseph Smith. Um, he was trying to set himself up. I don't think that's quite right. I think McClellan was genuinely confused. He doesn't quite understand how this process works. So he tries to write a revelation. Um, let's set aside then reading this story as a way to kind of bolster Joseph Smith, put him on a pedestal, and rather look at this story in another way. Revelation is not a matter of skill. It's not a matter of wisdom. It's not something you can do if you're a skillful writer. And if we're thinking of it that way, that's leading us down the wrong path because that's leading us to think about revelation as something that's perfect, something that's well-written, something that has no errors in it. And we already know that's not the case. Instead, I want to contrast that idea with another passage in DNC 67 about Joseph Smith. Notice this one. This one I think is really fascinating. And now I, the Lord, give unto you a testimony of the truth of these commandments. Now, what's being said here? God is testifying about the truth of these commandments. And notice where God goes from there. What God says to testify about the truth of these commandments. Your eyes have been upon my servant Joseph Smith Jr. and his language you have known, and his imperfections you have known. That's what God says to testify about the truth of these commandments. Joseph Smith is imperfect. That's God's testimony of these revelations. And that's fascinating, I think, because that leads us away from thinking about truth about God as information about God. It's telling us, right, um, you're not going to get to the reality of God by arguing about accuracy and error. Instead, it's telling us truth about God comes through empathy. Truth about each other comes through empathy. We learn about each other 
by imagining what it's like to be one in each other, for seeing each other in all of our errors, our limitations, our humanity. That's true of Joseph Smith. And they're being told here, look at Joseph Smith, he's not perfect. But paradoxically, it's through that imperfection that you can really come to know who he is. It's through the imperfection of scripture that we can learn who God is. It's through that contingency, the circumstance, the sheer humanity of Jesus Christ that we can come to learn who he is. And through that, we learn empathy, faith, hope, and charity. This is, I think, what Marilyn Robinson again calls sacramentalism. This is what we do with the sacraments, with the bread and the water. We take this finite, tangible, worldly object, and we look through it, and we see the divine through it. I think DNC 67 is urging us to see the world sacramentally, to see each other sacramentally, to be open to the possibility that it is through empathy with other fallible limited human beings that we will gain true insight into who God is. And that, I think, is what the 67th section of the Doctrine and Covenants is telling us revelation really is. Now, we'll leave that with you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. 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 Thank you so much, Matt. I think that um, we have a little bit of time for some uh, questions and comments from, from our audience. Um, I know that I saw a question here about, um, so, so here's one. Um, so do we need empathy for God and the Savior as they struggle to bring us to them? And what yeah. Might that- yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think I think it's that's a really wonderful question, and and it does I think point us to a lot of what's happening in Scripture, um, right? In the Hebrew Bible, in the New Testament. In the New Testament, of course, we see Christ, and Christ is as well as Isaiah calls him, right, a suffering servant. Um, Christ tells, right? And then there's this wonderful um, exchange he has with his apostles in Mark chapter eight, where he tells his apostles that he will be crucified. And they say, no, 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 no. You're the Messiah. The Messiah shouldn't be crucified. And, and, and Christ tells them, you don't really understand who I am, if you think that that's the case. And through, I think, much of the Hebrew Bible, you know, we often talk about the Hebrew Bible, um, and there's this really easy dichotomy people often make saying, oh, well, the, you know, the God of the Old Testament is mean, the God of the New Testament is loving. Um, that's, I think, as with so much else, too simple. Um, I think we often see in, in the Hebrew Bible, um, yeah, God struggling for relationship with us. Um, and, and sometimes certainly growing frustrated um, and calling us back and telling us over and over and over what we really want is a relationship. And so much of, of the Hebrew prophets say this, you know, Isaiah throughout, I mean, Isaiah chapter one, God tells Isaiah, um, your burnt offerings, your sacrifice, your ritual, all of that is meaningless to me if you do not have empathy for each other. Um, there's many atonement theories, but one of my favorites is the one in Alma 7. Um, right to where um, Alma tells us Christ suffers so he understands you and me. Um, Christ suffers because we all suffer and he wants to understand us fully. And the atonement then is him coming to understand us fully so he can treat us with empathy and kindness. Um, you know, you can set aside all the, the penal substitution stuff, all the, you know, he, he suffers our penalties, right? That's not what Alma tells us. Um, and I think there's a real deep truth to that. Yeah, and as you're, as you're talking about that too, and, um, you know, I just came back to the two great commandments, which are also this message, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Um, and, and love God and love your neighbor. And, and those two are deeply intertwined, right? Um, to yeah. do one, you have to do the other. Um, you know, and then this is what well, once you kind of think of our relationship with God in this way, you know, you see it all over scripture, right? This is Matthew 24 as well. Um, when I was in prison, you visited me. When I was hungry, you fed me, right? Um, in the least of these, my brethren, you see Christ. And that, that is, I think, it's not simply symbolic to say that, right? There's a real deep truth to that, because as we are baptized, we take upon ourselves the name of Christ, right? We're trying to be Christ. And so quite literally, right, Christ comes to us in other people. Um, if we are a church, you know, a church is more than simply an organization like the Red Cross or something like that. A church is supposed to be a spiritual body of Christ, a group of people bound together by the Holy Spirit. So yeah, Christ is quite literally in other people. Um, and by serving them, we serve him. By serving him, we come to know him. And by coming to know him, we are saved. Matt, there's a, there's a question here that, that I'm going to spring off of. The question is, the spirit brings truth, information, revelation. So what is the spirit? Um, that's a, uh, and, and let me take that one step further. There, there is, uh, when we talk about empathy, there's a, there's a, call it a paradox if you will, but there's a, there's a, um, who's, the, who's the actor? Who is the actor here? Uh, to talk about empathy suggests that it's us who exercises that empathy, who is listening, paying attention, some who is loving, um, but we also talk about the spirit making this happen. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and pressing it on us. We also talk about an obligation to exercise empathy, if you will. Um, is, is this an obligation? Is this something that we, is forced on us? Is this something that we take on ourselves? Yeah, no, that's really good. Um, I think, you know, it is something we strive to do. Um, and, and I think really, you know, the, thinking about what truth is, right? Truth is at some level, certainly information. Uh, but this reminds me of, of one of the wonderful passages um, in the King Follett discourse. And, you know, when I was, when I was 14 or so, my family did a church history tour. I bought a copy of the King Follett discourse because that's the kind of 14 year old I was. Um, and I read uh, the King Follett discourse in the backseat of my car. And I bring this up because I remember vividly where I was when I read this kind of lying prone in the backseat of my parents' car while they were driving. And I read um, this part in the King Follett discourse where Joseph Smith says, this is good doctrine. It tastes good. And I thought, huh, what does that mean? How can like knowledge information taste good? But as I thought about that, and maybe as I grew and you know, transcended being 14 years old, it really did come to make sense to me, right? Because we're not simply thinking machines. We're not simply kind of brains floating in jars, right? We experience the world physically and emotionally and tangibly. Um, and, and every, you know, our, our assertions of being rational or logical, I think, um, elides that fact. We don't simply think with our brains, we think with our bodies and we move with our bodies and we act with our bodies and we know things with our bodies at a really deep level. Um, that's why ritual is important. I think because we learn by doing, right? That's kind of basic pedagogy, but it's true. Um, and so as the spirit gives us knowledge and wisdom and insight, that's why I think we often talk about the spirit um, being something emotional, right? A kind of emotional cathartic experience, not simply kind of downloading um, information into our brains. And that's so true, I think, because of this, because God is a person. Right? Jesus Christ is a person. Our Heavenly Mother is a person. We know them like we know people, ideally. They're not simply machines that dispense blessings as we input quarters of righteousness. You know, um, they are not simply encyclopedias who give us knowledge about the universe. The point is not to know. The point is to know them and to have empathy for them the same way we have empathy with others and they for us likewise. So thinking about that, 
too. Also, um, you know, I'm really kind of grappling with um, kind of this, this community that's trying to, to kind of figure out these revelations and what they mean, not just for the individuals, but for this larger faith community. And then we're taking this and reading this you know, decades, centuries later, mm. and also trying to grapple with, um, with that. And there seems to be, uh, I'm not, this is too early in Alaska for me right now, but, but this, um, but this fits right. And this is as it should be this grappling together in these kind of tangible ways in relationship with each other as a faith community living in, the world trying to build the kingdom of God and figure out what that, what that means. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think it's kind of profound to think of it that way. Right. Um, this is another, I think, deep truth, which is that this is not something we do alone, right? Human beings are not, we're not kind of floating out there in the ether by ourselves. If the point is to achieve this relationship, um, with the Godhead and, and to return to kind of that sort of unity we, we had before the fall, um, then we have to do that here as well, right? We're not saved alone. We have to build relationships with each other and then build that holy community, that same community that is mirrored to us in the relationships we see in heaven. That's what it means to be the body of Christ, right? Is to construct that kind of relationship here on earth. And just as we as individuals struggle and fall down and get back up and sometimes are mean to people and then try to repent and be nice to them again. So I think we as the body of Christ, as an entire community, are trying to do that too. We're trying as a church to become that kind of empathetic person that Christ is, to make us communally what Christ has achieved. And it's a journey, right? We are all, we're on a journey. Um, we're traveling, we are a pilgrim people. I think a pilgrim church wandering through this earth, trying to become better, trying to become who God wants us to be. Um, yeah, and, and we may never get there in this life or in this time, right? But it's, it's a goal that we should always have. And again, and again, you know, just to kind of tie that up, tie this back into what I was saying, I think the real barrier to all of this is fear. Um, it is fear that produces in us lack of empathy. It's fear that produces in all of us pride. Um, and it's that kind of fear that we have to overcome. We have to learn to kind of trust God as we learn to trust other people. And once we have that trust, we can overcome that fear and then develop that real sort of empathy, both as individuals and as a church. The, the idea of fear... And the idea of construction come together in my mind. Um, it's a question here of whether we, whether God intends that we make mistakes in this life. And I, it's, it's, it's a wonderful question to tie with the idea of, of making of weakness something mm -hmm. that is strong, not in, as you've described, not in a um, controlling or, uh, uh, or, uh, a commanding way, but in a in a in a humble way. Mm -hmm. uh, this uh, would you uh, think about the or talk about the idea of us as human beings, including these men? Um, I think they were all men in this conversation about what do we do with these revelations to us as individuals, and and do we make them scripture? In effect, there is a. There is a human beings constructing something here. Yeah. 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 So a couple of things there. I think the first, right. Um, does God intend for us to make mistakes? I think, I think it's inevitable that we will um, if God intends it or not, you know, that, that is <laughs> part of being human. And, and, um, and, and one of, I think we fear mistakes often. We fear sinning quote unquote. And because of that, we try to run away from it. We try to deny it. We try to pretend that we cannot make mistakes if we just try hard enough. Um, and I think part of coming to this point of empathy is to realize that it's, we're going to, and perhaps, you know, that's okay. Um, and to accept their inevitability of that and not spend so much time or energy trying to deny it. 
um, or to depart or to flee from it. And that I think leads to the second part of your question about, about making scripture and kind of treating these things in scripture. Um, I think a lot of what we do or what we, or what we are called to do is to stretch ourselves um, and is to kind of stretch, especially our imaginations and to try to envision um, people who are far, far different from us. And there are, you know, these people back in the early 19th century are pretty different from us. And looking at them and seeing, here's how they're grappling with God. Here's how they're trying to understand this. And thinking, because this is scripture, what it means to call the scripture is to say, this is relevant to me somehow. I have to read this text and find in it something that is meaningful to me. And maybe sometimes that might mean, well, as with, for instance, you know, whenever I used to be a Sunday school teacher for years and years, and I, I would taught, I taught the Hebrew Bible a couple of times, and we'd hit like Joshua and Leviticus and these passages, right? Uh, these passages that seem so far distant from us in Joshua, right? This sort of massacre and conquest and all of that. And we can, in one sense, run away from that as we kind of run away from our own mistakes and just say, well, no, we don't want to talk about that. That makes us uncomfortable. Or we can read it and think this text has something to tell me. And maybe the thing that we take from that text is a further refinement and clarification of what we think is moral or immoral. And we might say, wow, what the children of Israel are doing here seems to me horrible. And that's me learning from the text. We can learn from the text, even if we don't accept all of it, right? And I think as with so much else, it's that grapple that's really key. It's that empathetic grapple to say, all right, I'm gonna take the book of Joshua, I'm gonna wrestle with it. I'm gonna struggle with it. Um, I'm gonna learn and grow from it and understand it. Um, but it's not just a binary of saying, yes, this is revelation, no, it's not revelation, right? Um, engaging with it is really key. Yeah, I loved the, the thoughts of um, your eyes have been upon this right yeah, yeah, rather yeah. than like what are what is the question what are our, our eyes upon right and how do we get ourselves to reorient that and and thinking about that also in tandem with the question of what testimony should we attach to these commandments right what is what is the testimony that we're creating out of this scripture which is text and relationship <laughs> to each other right yeah um, yeah i know that's wonderful right and, and it is i think that's the, the real key is that we have to develop some testimony of it right we have to kind of engage with it in some way we cannot simply dismiss it or throw it away um but by the same token right we don't have to make it perfect either because it's not perfect um it says itself it's not perfect um just as with joseph smith we look at him we engage with him our eyes as it says right your eyes are on joseph smith your eyes are on his imperfections um but you can see through that his struggle to be godly, his struggle to follow Christ. And as you see his struggle, you might perhaps see your own. Um, because, right, if Joseph Smith can produce the Book of Mormon, if he can produce these, these scriptures while being, as God says, imperfect and limited, what could we do? What could God do with us? if he worked with the children of Israel who did these terrible things sometimes, if he did what he did with Joseph Smith, who screwed up himself as well, right? What is possible for us? What imagination can we have for what world we might make? Great. Thank you so much, Matt. Um, we'll go ahead and officially close. Um, lots of gratitude for this excellent sermon. Um, just rich, uh, rich things to think about. 
so thank you. Uh, thank you all. We'll be back with Dialogue Gospel Study in two weeks on July 11th with Blair Osler. We'll, we'll, we are also looking forward to upcoming lessons by Joshua Molina and George Hanley. And Allison will close us with a prayer. Dear God, we are full of gratitude for the opportunity that we have had to reflect on our relationship with thee and with thy word and with one another. We're thankful for Matt and his preparation and for the organizers of this group that bring us together to explore the scripture and um, seek for knowledge and also for change. Uh, we pray that um, <clears throat> we will be able to surrender our fear and our pride and to, to find humility and pray that thou wilt guide each of us in our, in our personal and um, search as a people together for truth, um, that we can have wisdom and empathy and um, learn to understand thee and one another better. Um, we pray that this spirit of love and compassion can go with us um, through our Sabbath today and our week and our interactions with all those around us. And thank you very much for this opportunity this day in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to the Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Find more of our podcasts at dialoguejournal.com slash podcasts.